This is Discussions on the Firewater Network, where we talk to those crafting the future of the spirits industry. And now, here's your host. This is Zachary Farley. Today, I'm speaking with an expert in the field of getting craft products into the hands of the right retailers and ultimately the right customers. What seems to separate my guest from so many other sales professionals is his awareness of how each sales channel is different, yet interconnected, and how a brand's sales strategy needs to adapt depending on the venue. On-prem is different from off, but strong on-prem sales can lead to more off-prem opportunities. Independent retailers need to be wooed in the exact ways one doesn't want to approach large chains. Finding the right brand strategy, sales metrics, and stakeholder approach is where my guest, Tim Jones of Great Vines, thrives. As an aside, we're recording this interview over Skype. Please excuse any audio issues that may arise as our discussion traverses the internet. With that said, I'd like to introduce my guest, Tim Jones. Tim, thanks for joining me today. Hi, Zachary. Thanks very much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's going to be great speaking with you. So, Tim, tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you get mixed up in helping alcohol makers get their products into the hands of consumers? Well, I've got to go back quite a ways. I'll, I'll date myself uh, <laughs> and say that you know, over 20 years ago now, I got into the industry after college. I was actually playing professional soccer at the time and wasn't making any money, as you can imagine. And I started working for an agency, a marketing agency that went out and did these, you know, bar nights, if you will. And believe it or not, I used to manage having samplers go into a bar and, and pass out recipe cards and keychains and free samples of, of booze. And that was my sort of entry into the market. It paid really well. And my brother's friend got me the job and I kind of got hooked on it. See, Tim, you did it right, it sounds like. I've gone to a lot of bars at nights, and I've never made a career out of it. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, my friends are very jealous that I've selected this industry as a profession because, as we joke, you know, when you're out enjoying nightlife and consuming alcohol, you're actually working. And I don't know <laughs> if there's many occupations you can have where you can say that. Awesome. So from there, I got pretty serious about it and took a management role in this agency, and we were working with big suppliers to do all these tastings. and. And then I ended up getting hired by one of our clients, which at the time was Diageo. And I started doing a ground-level sales position in New York City for that company. Sort of built my career from there. So I started at the grassroots and have taken it all the way to a completely different direction now that I've owned my own software company that's catered specifically to beverage alcohol sales. But it's been a great road. That's awesome. And you started off in New York. I guess you got kind of tired of the <laughs> the snow and the cold, which I can definitely understand. And now you're headquartered out of California. Is that it? That's right. That's right. We are a company of a pretty good size now, over 20 people, and we're spread out all over the U.S., all working remotely, taking advantage of the latest technology to still have a collaborative work environment, but have everyone work from home. So I'm here in Southern California in, in Venice Beach. Most of our employees are up in either Napa Valley, California, or in Portland, Oregon. And we've got some people in New York City and in Florida as well. That's awesome. So let's talk about your company a little bit. Tell me about Great Vines. What services does your company provide? 
Well, I started Grapevines now about six years ago with the mission of being able to provide a really comprehensive sales management solution to suppliers in the beverage alcohol space. And through my experiences over the years, I knew that there were lots of different tools out there you could take advantage of to help you maximize your selling efforts. But nothing was really all in one place and none of the tools were really approachable from a consumer application style of deployment. And so set out to really build something revolutionary for our business, for our industry. And now Grapevines is you know, really a, a complete sales and marketing platform that's just targeted to trade sales within beverage alcohol. So it's something a little bit more sophisticated than the standard Excel spreadsheet that I'm sure a lot of craft manufacturers get started on. Uh, It is. And I love Excel. I still use Excel for certain things because I love it and it's so flexible. And yes, I spent my career, you know, living in those spreadsheets as well. But what we've done is taken all those things you can do in spreadsheets and in Outlook or Gmail and calendaring and everything else and put it all into one place in a more user-friendly kind of environment. That's awesome. I like to speak to craft distillers, people who are just getting started or People who've had their brands around for two or three, five, sometimes 10 years. And if you've been around for 10 years in this industry, you've been around forever, I think is the way a lot of people feel. When in a company's life cycle, should they reach out to you? Should they be looking for the kind of deep metrics and analytics that great vines can provide? That's a good question. I really believe that if you're investing at all in sales, mm-hmm. then you really should have a tool to help you manage those sales efforts. Because as we know, Investing in sales is not cheap. In other words, to put a person in a market to call on accounts and work with a distributor costs quite a bit of money. And it's a major investment. And for a lot of craft beverage companies, it probably could be their biggest investment and even costs more than it costs to manufacture their products. So if you're going to invest that money, you need to have a tool in place to help you manage the person properly, make sure you're getting your bang for your buck and they're out doing the things you want them to do, but also give them a tool to make them extremely productive while they are out in the field doing their sales work. If you don't have a tool in place, you're really not maximizing your investment and you're going to probably end up spending money unwisely. So I'd say as soon as you're making an investment in sales, give us a call. We can scale up from a small number of users, if you're just getting started, to thousands of users. We've got customers that have less than five users. on. Oh, okay. So really, it's never too early. When you start focusing on selling your products, give us a call. <laughs> it's a great answer because when I think cloud-based services, and from reading on your website, you guys are based on the salesforce.com platform. And that all just like yells enterprise to me, you know, large-scale sales operations. But it's fascinating that it makes sense that someone even at five-person sales team, obviously you still want to be able to provide tracking and easier-to-use tools than just handwritten notes and basic spreadsheets. You know, Zachary, that is the common perception is people are intimidated by, oh, an enterprise software application. Yeah, that's not me. <laughs> you yeah. Know? I go to work in a t-shirt and jeans. Why should I be looking at an enterprise solution? Exactly, exactly. And quite frankly, the way that the software is deployed now enables small companies to actually take advantage of the best technology available and have a state-of-the-art system without spending a fortune on it. I can tell you that we have companies that we work with that use Grapevines, customers of ours, that have five users that have a better sales execution and management system in place than other companies who have hundreds of salespeople. 
purely because they're smart about it. They've taken advantage of the way software can be deployed now. They've taken advantage of the Gradevine's application. And our licensing model is you pay per user. So if you've got five users, you're paying for five people. If you've got a thousand users, you're paying a lot more for a thousand users. But there really is no barrier to the entry now. And small companies can have the best technology available working for them. Whereas in the past, it was only meant for the big companies who could afford it. And that's just not the case anymore. Well, so I'd like to expand on that just a little bit, stepping away a little bit from grapevines and just calling upon all of your past experience, even before you started your company, in building a sales force. So many craft creators, they get into this industry because they just really love making their product. They obsess over things like temperature ranges in their still, specific times to make their heads, hearts, and tails cuts, what's the temperature of their barrel rooms and how that's going to affect the oakiness of their final product. They get into it because they know that they can make the best product on the market. But when it comes that time to introduce it to the public and say, hey guys, I've made the best whiskey in the world. Now I want people to come in and buy it. You know, that's kind of where they falter a little bit. They want to make booze, not be salesmen. How should a new craft brand really approach sales? You know, how do they start thinking about building that sales team? It's a great question. I think it's so relevant for most craft beverage producers because that's really what they should be doing is producing the best product that they can. And as you described, that's what they love doing. The problem is that sales is a completely different animal. And it is very hard for people who have focused on developing and producing a product to then sort of switch gears and put on a salesman's hat to go out and try to sell their beverages. It is a very difficult profession to be a salesman, and you have to be cut out for it. Mm -hmm. The best salespeople are not the best distillers. I can tell you that. (laughs) And the best distillers are probably not the best salespeople. So it is important that if you're at that stage where you're ready to start selling your product, that you actually engage with people who know something about sales, Mm -hmm. that understand how to go about selling a product, and more importantly, are really comfortable exhibiting those sales behaviors or the behaviors that enables you to sell a product. My wife and I joke about this a lot, but she would say it's so hard for her to go and ask somebody to buy something. And I understand that. But there are people out there that have no problem being able to go and ask somebody to buy something or to do something for them. And they thrive on it. These are people that are really people-oriented. They've got great people skills. And they have no problem asking people to do things for them. And that's what's going to make them very successful. So you really need to engage with the right types of people to go out and sell your product. And a mistake you might make is to think that you can do it yourself. But listen, if you're not comfortable knocking on a door of a bar and walking in and finding out who the buyer is and asking him to buy something from you and do that repeatedly, you know, five, 10 times a day, every day, then you're going to need to hire someone who is a specialist and and is capable of doing those things. You kind of need to have that honest moment with yourself. After you've bottled your first product, you've put it in a box, you've slapped a label on it and it's corked and it's ready to go out. Can you really make that sales call? Because you are going to be walking into a bar, maybe they've never met you before, and you're going to have to ask them, right? Please remove one bottle that you currently have in your back bar and replace it with my own. Right. 
I guess if you're the maker of it, you have to have that honest evaluation of yourself. Am I the right person to be my own brand manager? And it's not a question of whether you love your product or not, because obviously you do, you've made it. But can you be the one who can also convey that love and passion to a complete stranger? That's right. Part of the sales process is to sell a buyer on how great your product is and talk to him about the different features of it and get him excited about it and the benefits that that will lead to for his customers being more happy and enjoying the drink and willing to pay more for their drinks and things like that. Those types of things are probably pretty easily communicated by a distiller because they're passionate about the product and they can talk about the product. But it's all the other stuff surrounding the sales process that's extremely hard to do. How do you be organized about you know, what accounts to visit and when? And you're going to walk in, it's going to be loud, it could be dark, and the guy's going to be busy, and he doesn't have time for you. How are you going to get his attention? It's those other little things that really make good salespeople effective. And I'll tell you what's wonderful is if two people can work in tandem, and this is duplicating your resources, but if a really good salespeople can do all that legwork and that hard work to get the appointment and set it up and open the relationship up and everything, and then turn it over to a distiller or a brewer to explain something about the product and convey that passion that they have about the product, and then give it back to the salesperson himself to close the deal, make the sale, that's an ideal situation. We often talk about how distributors, and we're going to, I'm sure we're going to talk about distributors a lot oh, more. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but how distributors are really good salespeople. They're, they're able to get the meeting. They're able to get the guy's attention. They can tee everything up for you. And if you're able to get a, what we call a work with, with a distributor, where someone directly from your brand is able to go and speak to the buyer and just talk about nothing but the product itself, and then turn it back over to the distributor to close the deal, that's a great situation to be in. But you need to have the right salespeople in place if you're going to be successful on a commercial level. There's no doubt about it. And I know it's a big investment. And there's a lot of debate about when's the right time to invest in a person to go out and sell your product. And that's a million-dollar question. If you had the exact right answer on that, uh, yeah, you'd be able to branch off yourself even into another area. When is that right time for someone to come in? I'd like to talk to you a little bit about making that investment. There's only 24 hours in everyone's day. You have to produce the product. Let's say someone is just getting started. Maybe they have a partner. Maybe there's three of them. As they sit down and think about, okay, it's going to take me this long to distill and bottle and produce the product and get it ready for sale. How much of that other time should they really be thinking about going out there, meeting accounts, making introductions? How should people approach making sure they're setting aside enough time to get out there and meet people and get their product in front of potential purchasers. If you're in that position, you have to force yourself to spend time on developing your commercial plan and going about the sales process. It's not something you may not want to do, but if you're going to be successful and grow and sell your wares, you're going to have to focus on it. Mm -hmm. I can tell you, I've seen great products, most beautiful products you can imagine fail. Hmm because they haven't invested enough time and energy into their sales efforts. And I've also seen the opposite. I've seen horrible products that <laughs> you wouldn't even want to put in your mouth. Name no names. <laughs> Name no names. But I've seen those products hit home runs and sell everywhere. And for me, it all comes down to how well you execute your sales plan and your sales strategy. And it's unfortunate that that's the case. Because if you're making a beautiful product, you're making a great beer or cider or whiskey or whatever it is, you'd like to think that the message will eventually get out and people will buy it because it's a great tasting product. That's unfortunately not true. Mm -hmm. And what is true and what the reality is, is that 
people will buy it if it's in distribution in the right account, if it's at the right price, if it's on promotion where it's visible to them in front of the store or right on the back bar or on a cocktail menu or drink list. If you don't have those levels of activation going on in an account, you're not going to sell anything. I don't care how good your product is. You won't sell anything. So you need to invest time and money into it. And at first, it's going to be yourself, right? You're going to be out with some friends and you're going to take your product around and you're going to try to spread the word. But eventually, I think you need to invest in a proper sales resource in order to to really get things going. Before you hire your first person, I imagine a lot of people who are just getting started look to their distributor to be that salesperson for them because they want to branch out and get beyond just what they're able to sell out of their own distillery. And they probably rely on a distributor to have those contacts. You know, I get so many questions from listeners who want to know about attracting the quote unquote right distributor for them. You know, in some states, distributors hold all the cards. And in other states, they are the key to just expanding your sales. How should a new distillery hungry to make sales rationally evaluate a distributor to ensure that they're getting a good fit and not just taking the first distributor that notices them and walks in through the door and then leaves their product in the corner of their warehouse? Is there a right way to evaluate a distributor? I think it's really about the relationship that you can establish with a distributor that's important. Listen, every distributor has the ability to physically purchase product from you, put it in their warehouse, take orders from accounts and retailers, and deliver the product. They all have that basic capability. We know that. So there's nothing operational that you need to concern yourself with. What you need to concern yourself with when selecting a distributor is what type of relationship you will be able to establish with them. And it comes down to people. As you go and you meet a distributor, maybe you'll end up meeting their head of sales or an executive in their company to try to pitch them on bringing in your product and start selling your product. If that person doesn't understand what you're trying to do, doesn't appreciate the quality of your product, and isn't willing to at least give you the benefit of the doubt and give you a chance to be successful, then you don't want to partner with them. And I can tell you that distributors are extremely profitable businesses, and they're extremely busy people. They've got large portfolios of brands that they need to sell and they want to sell and to make money. So where your product fits in the hierarchy, if you will, of brands is worth noting. And the reality is when you're just getting started, you will be on the bottom of the list. Your brand will be at the bottom of the priority totem pole. And that's kind of a fact. So if anyone has any illusions that they're going to be able to sort of select a distributor that they think is going to be right for them and think that that distributor is going to automatically go out and do some great work, the chances are that that is not going to happen. But Tim, I'm making the best product out there. Come on. (laughs) I know. I know. Think about it. There's a lot of other suppliers that sell to that distributor that are saying the same thing. Mm Mm-hmm. There's a lot of other products that that distributor sells that are already selling and they're selling through well. And if you look at a distributor sales rep, they're really almost like an independent businessman. If you think of it this way, they make money by selling products. They make commissions. So what do you think a distributor sales rep is going to sell when he walks into an account? He's going to try to find things that he thinks are going to move and he's going to be able to sell through. He doesn't have the ability to take a lot of time hand selling a new product that nobody knows about that he knows is going to be a slow build and it's probably not going to sell through very quickly at first. He just doesn't have the time to invest 
in that type of business development. He might have 15 minutes with a buyer at most. Hmm. Okay. So in that 15 minutes, he's got to select what he needs to present so that he can make the most money. And the reality is your brand is probably going to have a hard time cracking into that portfolio that he's going to be presenting on a regular basis. So I often say, look, your distributor is essential, but your success is not linked to your distributor. Your success initially is linked to your own ability to do it yourself and to get accounts interested in your product. Your distributor will not do that for you. They start to do those things for you once they see the brand being successful. And once there is some traction in the marketplace, then your distributor will say, okay, I see this brand is starting to come along. Now it's worth my time to mention it on a sales call. And now I'll go out and do some work for these guys because I see that they've, they've achieved some success and we have a chance to grow together. Until you've proven that, the distributor isn't going to do much for you at all. So I think that your expectations of a distributor should be extremely low. So you are still your own brand ambassador and you must still go out there and make your introductions and move your product on your own on some level. Absolutely. The DIY model, the do-it-yourself model is the only way that you're going to make an impact. And once you've made your initial impact in the market and you've done it yourself, you've met with accounts on your own, you've pitched them on your product, and you've essentially taken the order for the distributor, if you will. Mm -hmm. Once you start to get some success doing that, now you're on the radar of the distributor. And now they may start to throw you some more effort, but it takes a while. And if you don't do it yourself, you're never going to get there. In fact, I know a lot of wholesalers that will not take your product unless you have a person in the marketplace in sales working in the field. Oh, really? Absolutely. That is really the case, I think, with a lot of larger distributors. They pick and choose, you know, essentially what brands they want to accept into their portfolio. And if you're not going to be there to do the work for them and help them get some sales up and running, mm -hmm. they won't consider even taking you into the market. Because hmm. they don't want your product just sitting there if you're not going to help move it for them because they have so many other things to manage. That's right. So what can a small brand do then to make sure that they aren't being ignored by their distributor? You know, How can you partner up with your distributor to make sure both of your goals are being met? I know you mentioned the, I think you call it a ride-along, where you go along with the distributor's salesperson to introduce them. What are a couple of tactics that a small producer can really put into place to achieve everyone's goals? I think it's about, you know, the way you man quote unquote manage your distributor is really important. And that's what a lot of supplier salespeople end up becoming is distributor managers, where, you know, once your brand reaches a certain scale, you're not the one out doing all the work, visiting accounts all day. You're more helping manage your distributor to get them to do that. And that's what the big companies often call their salespeople. They're distributor managers. Okay. Huh. And the way you manage your distributor is very important when you're a small guy just getting into the market. If you walk in the door and you set some expectations around how many cases we want you to sell, and we think you should be getting distribution in 50 accounts this month, and you sort of start challenging them that way, they're not going to have a very good reaction to it. <laughs> right. Okay. But if you walk in and part of your distributor management style is, hey, I'm going to visit these 50 accounts this month. And I'm going to present our product to these accounts and I'll coordinate with your salesperson if there's any interest and if there's a sale to be had there. And then at the end of the month, I'll come back and I'll review with you how many accounts I was able to penetrate and start to show you the success that I've been able to get on my own. That's how you start with a wholesaler. So that next meeting is, hey, 
look at these accounts that I met with and I made these presentations and I actually sold these 20 cases this month. Your sales rep didn't. I sold them for you. And Mr. Distributor, you obviously reaped the benefit of that and you guys earned some money and your sales rep made a commission without having to do anything. (laughs) That's the kind of success you have to show early on. And if you can show your wholesaler that your management style is really about supporting them and partnering with them, then you're going to be more successful. If you walk in and try to say, I want you to do this. You guys are doing a terrible job. You only sold, you know, 10 accounts this month. What's going on? That's likely going to fall on deaf ears. And they're going to say, not only am I not making any money on this brand, (laughs) now I've got some other guy yelling at me. Okay, I don't need this. And they're going to tune you out. Okay, yeah. Let's see how much I value you now (laughs) that I can't even take your phone call anymore. That's right. So I just don't want to hear from you. That's right. So more importantly, now, that's another reason why it's important to have a good system in place to manage your sales execution so that you can share that information with your distributor in a nice templated format or in a report that you can run out of your system so that in a very short communication with your wholesaler, you can say, here's what I've been doing. And they can quickly look at something, a nice chart and say, wow, you've really visited a lot of accounts and you've made a lot of sales. Great. Thank you so much. And so another reason to have a good system in place. Yeah, I've had a very short career in sales, but uh, it was an interesting one. And I can say to the issue on reports, there's nothing like being able to provide an easy tool to right after you have a meeting, something you don't mind opening up your laptop to, writing a quick note contemporaneous with your meeting, and then having that stored forever. So you don't wait till you get back to the office, then you start writing everything up. Yeah, you might have forgotten a key detail, you might have forgotten a stop that you went to. And now all of a sudden, your reporting is not as valuable as it would have been if you could have done it right after that meeting while it's still fresh in your memory. That's absolutely right. With mobile applications now and iPads and smartphones, you're able to utilize Gradevines and other software tools on the fly when you're in the field so that you can log your information right then and there Mm -hmm. in the call or when you're finished with the call. And that's really critical to user adoption of your tool and also making the most of it. It's got to be mobile. Everything in these days has to be mobile. And we've invested a ton of money in making our application extremely user-friendly and mobile for those reasons. Very cool. Well, I'd like to really talk about what it's like for that person who lives in a state, they're able to self-distribute, and they have that product in the box, and they want to start approaching various sales outlets. When I first met you at the Craft Beverage Expo, one of your big talking points was about realizing how there's a, just a gigantic difference between approaching an independent liquor store and a big chain. Beyond the obvious differences of scale, what makes pitching a small independent liquor store different from pitching a larger chain? Well, there's certainly different buyers involved, right? And, and different sort of style of buyer at the personal level. The chains are hiring people to manage their beverage programs and be their beverage buyers who are going to be very fact-oriented because they want to minimize their risk, right? The worst thing that can happen is a buyer buys in a bunch of product and it doesn't sell through. That's a recipe for disaster. And most of the chains are, they are very risk-averse. And and in fact, they won't bring in a new product until you can prove to them that it will be successful and has been successful elsewhere. Hmm. Um, very few chains want to actually be on the front end (laughs) of providing a great new consumer experience. They just are late adopters, if you will. Mm -hmm. 
So the independent stores are more likely to take a risk on something because they might believe in you or your product and it's not a big deal for them to take a few bottles or to take a couple packs or, or what have you. And an independent retailer is typically a, an owner of a store, maybe a mom and pop kind of a thing, but typically it's one person's decision. And if he's wrong, he may not get fired for it because he owns the store. <laughs> he's <anyway>. the owner. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So if you can build a good relationship with an independent buyer, you've got a good chance of getting your product in. If they like you, then they like your brand, they may be willing to give it a shot. And it's as simple as that. So it's a completely different style of sales pitch. There is just an issue of scale on some level too, right? Even a small regional chain isn't going to just take a case or two, right? You probably have to prove that you can produce at scale a consistent product so that the large chains aren't concerned about putting your product in multiple stores and ensuring that their customers have the same experience with every bottle that they buy. Absolutely. I mentioned one huge pitfall that or one huge uh, mistake that a a chain buyer can make to get fired, Mm -hmm. which was buy a lot of product and have it not sell through. The other one, which is the opposite side of the scale, equally as bad is to commit to putting a product in or promoting a product across all their stores and then not being able to fill the orders to get the product in because there isn't supply. So what you have then is communications going out to each individual outlet saying, we're going to promote this brand, make room on your shelf this month for this product, and then the product never shows up. (laughs) So I often say, don't go to a market unless you already have the distribution there and the capability of distributing there. A chain is never going to take you into distribution if you don't already have the distribution in their the region where they operate. Hmm. For example, let's say you run into a chain that's got stores in California and Nevada. Let's take Beverages and More, for example. Great store, BevMo, out here mostly on the West Coast, a little over 100 stores, just beverages, just wine, spirits, beer, and some soft drinks. Great chain just for beverages. Highly encourage people to target them as their first chain as they get into growing their distribution. But if you're only distributed in California and not in Nevada, they're not going to take your product because they have stores in Nevada. And if you say, well, listen, if you agree to take me in, I know the distributor will happily, I'll, I'll be easily be able to get a distributor set up quickly in Nevada. That's not the role of the chain. They're not going to play that game where they're helping you get into a state with a distributor. So make sure you're in the market first before you even bother talking to a chain. Resist the temptation to go to the chains too early. I'm just saying, it sounds like a dream come true. You have distribution in 50 states. Ah, how do I say no to a chain? <laughs> I know, but it's, it's very possible to go to a chain too early. And it happens all the time. And not only if you go too early, you can run the risk of two things happening. One, they're going to listen to your pitch and they're not going to accept your brand for whatever reason, probably because it hasn't been successful enough elsewhere. And they're going to say no to you. Hmm. The next time you're going to get a meeting with them is not going to be for a very long time. Because if you think, okay, great, let's try again in six months. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) They just said, I just met with you six months ago. And so you're not going to be able to even have an opportunity to get back in front of that buyer again for a long time. So you want to make sure when you do present, they're going to say yes. The second point is, if you go in too early, and let's say they say yes to your product, and they do bring your product in, and you fail, maybe because you didn't have enough supply, or maybe because, it, frankly, the consumer awareness wasn't there yet. You hadn't built the brand enough to support that level of distribution, and the product just sat on the shelf, and you failed. 
you will never get back into that chain again. They're going to be pissed off that they took you in, they gave you a chance, and you'll get discontinued. And it'll be years before you can even get another meeting with them. So make sure you don't go until you're absolutely ready. And the distributor plays somewhat of a role in this as well. Distributors act as gatekeepers to chain buyers too, because if a distributor obviously have relationships with chain buyers, they're selling them all their product, but the chain buyers often ask distributors to play gatekeeper. They'll say, look, it's springtime. I'm doing my shelf reset for vodka. And they might say to the distributor, bring me a few vodkas you think might fit in my store. Well, now the distributor is going to go through their portfolio and they're going to select what to present. And again, if they do select you to present, great, that's wonderful. But if your product fails, they're not going to bring you in again. You know, oh, man. Now the distributor starts to block you in places because they're not comfortable that you're going to sell through. So, you know, a far better strategy initially is to target the independents. And I'm not talking about the local corner liquor store. I'm talking about the key accounts. Okay. There are some great stores in the markets, great beverage outlets out there that are not chains. These are stores where your target consumer is shopping and it's a good shopping environment, maybe where you can even do some tastings or actually do some kind of promotion in the store. Those are the stores you need to go to first hmm. and build your brand there and go after them very strictly. Have a target list. And in your in Grapevines, you're able to identify what those target accounts are. And now you know where you're focused, right? Where you should be selling and where you should be presenting. Once you have distribution in that target account, what's the next thing you need to do? Do a staff training. Oh, Make sure you've got a staff training executed. Then what? Well, let's make sure you're promoted. Are you on a drink menu or maybe you're on the display or on a tap handle, right? Get some kind of promotion in those accounts and really go deep with those key independent accounts to build a solid foundation and do them one account at a time and start checking them off and monitor your success you know, very diligently through a system. And that's how you build your brand. And that's how you really get it out of the gate. I'd kind of like to talk about one thing you mentioned in that, and that is the role of bars and tap handles. In your experience, does the consumer go out and buy brands in stores that they see on drinks lists and behind bars and on tap handles? Is being in a bar a promotion in and of itself, let alone what you might sell through at that bar? Does that help place your brand in the mind of your ultimate consumer? Absolutely. It's the best advertising that money can buy. Let's say a new hot restaurant opens up here in Venice and I go with some friends and I walk in and I see what they have on tap right on the beer tap, or I see what's on their drink menu and I can see what cocktails they're serving and what brands are serving. I immediately know now that those are the cool brands. Those are happening brands. And somebody at that restaurant has made the decision to put them on their list. Therefore, they must be good. If I like the restaurant, I think it's a great place and the food's great. Then I'm going to trust that the cocktails they're promoting on their menu are great brands as well. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go off and I'm going to buy those brands in the off-premise. That is how consumers learn about products. The taste of the product is important, but not as important as what's promoted, right? Image is everything in the beverage world oftentimes. And if I'm able to convey a really great image for my brand by being in the right on-premise, hot, trendy account and being promoted there, then that consumer is going to think that that's the greatest brand ever. Hmm. 
And so I've often talked to even retailers about this, especially on-premise key account managers, guys that own nightclubs in, let's say, Las Vegas. When I worked for big companies like Moet Hennessy, for example, they would say to me, why are you guys spending all that money on that billboard advertisement down the strip when if you just spend a little bit of money here in my club to promote your brand, it would have a much greater impact on your target consumer? And I buy into that logic. I absolutely agree that being promoted in the right accounts is the best advertising money can buy. Yeah, that's great. It kind of goes back to one of the foundational questions you have to ask yourself as a craft producer, who's my customer? And to your point, where do they drink? And what lifestyle do they live? And how does my brand align with that? And then how do you get in front of those key third-party validators, for lack of a better word, who say, this product is exactly what this bar is about, and that's why it's on my drink menu. And if you drink here, you clearly subscribe to everything we're kind of promoting here. That's right. Zachary, there's, I don't know, about 600,000 accounts in the United States that have liquor licenses. Wow. Both on and off premise. Okay. And actually, it's probably more than that, to be honest with you. Now, how many of those are going to be important to you and your brand? You need to figure out which ones are must-haves, which are the ones you must be in for all the reasons we just discussed, and spend 100% of your time and money penetrating those accounts and promoting in those accounts. And I think one other thing in all that is the, (laughs) the importance of key reporting, right? You need to be able to pull up a snapshot and see, okay, which bars are moving my product because they're calling to replace orders. And which ones aren't. And then you can kind of see, okay, where am I being adopted and where am I not being adopted? And that all goes back to the importance of record keeping in a good sales process. That's right. And also managing the activities that you should be executing in the account. Because once you have distribution, that's not enough. You need to bring the brand to life by activating it in the brand and getting some visibility for the brand, which means doing a staff training, right? Getting the staff excited about your product and selling. So just so I understand you, when you're saying staff training, you mean staff at the bar or staff at the distributor, not your own internal staff. Correct. I'm talking about staff at the account level, at the bar or at the store. Gotcha. Those are the people that you need to convince your brand's great. And then they'll sell it for you, obviously, when you're not there. They're going to be selling it to their patrons and their customers. So once you get the distribution, you've got to do a staff training. Step number one, get the distribution. (laughs) Step number two, do a staff training. Huh. Step number three, get some kind of promotion going in the account. And until you've done those three things in a key account, you are not finished. You know, the job is not done. Hmm. So the important thing isn't just that you're behind the bar. The important thing is when that bartender gets asked by a patron, hey, what's a cool new gin that I should be trying right now? They should think, oh yeah, Tim's brand was just in here. And he said that they're, here are the five things that differentiate their gins from all other gins on the market. That's right. That's right. You need to make those the bartenders and waitstaff people and people that work in stores, you know, your salesman for you. And, and if you can convey your passion about your brand to them in some kind of a training session, then they're going to convey that same passion to the consumer. And that helps maximize the message that gets out to consumers for your brands. Fantastic. So I'd, I'd like to move on now and kind of talk a much bigger picture. Let's talk about the brand that's been in existence for a while, they've gotten picked up at their small stores, maybe even a few regional chains. They've really decided that now's the time to push this local success and move into other states and start signing up distribution agreements with new distributors. Yeah, it's a fantastic moment in your life because now you can become a 20-state brand instead of perhaps just a two-state brand. A slight problem, you know, <laughs> the team isn't growing at the distillery to meet all these new territorial obligations, so to speak. 
How can a craft company manage their distribution out of state? How do they make sure they don't get worn too thin and spread too thin too quickly? How do you kind of avoid that temptation to want to be in 40 states as soon as you can to make sure you are actually able to effectively manage yourself as you grow? Well, I'll tell you, the craft brewers are a great example of how to do this well. Because typically craft brewers start, just as you described, they start local and they expand out from there. But they only expand when they have enough juice to be able to sell. They have enough (laughs) beer to be able to sell. So they never go into markets before they're ready, right? Because they can't. Yeah, one keg once is not helpful, right? You have to be able to keep that bar supplied and they turn over so quickly. Absolutely. So they're very careful about expanding distribution to new markets. And I think that's a great model to follow. Don't grow too quickly. And if you are going to go into a competitive market, then you need to really consider putting a dedicated person or having a person dedicate some time to selling in that market. Mm -hmm. You cannot expand into Nevada, let's say, without having a resource in sales that's going to go and visit accounts in Nevada and visit the distributor in Nevada on a very regular basis. You will fail if you don't. I can't just be a distiller in New York. I sign up a distributor in Nevada and I'll just assume I end up in all the hot bars in Las Vegas. Yeah. That's not the way that's going to work. Oh, okay. Not going to happen. And in fact, take some brands like, uh, take Yingling, for example, which is a beer. I don't know if we call it a craft beer anymore or not, but I know they're extremely large now, very large. And they are only in a little more than a handful of states, but they are only in states that surround them on that sort of Eastern seaboard. And they've been around for a long, long, long time selling a ton of beer and they have resisted moving to other states. So they've proven that you can be successful yeah. being a regional product. And there's no harm, there's no shame in it. Because mm-hmm. you're likely, if you only have a certain amount of resources, it's better to focus those resources on one market and get the most you possibly can out of that market than to try to spread thin and go to multiple markets. Because those markets will not deliver the volumes that you're going to need to sustain yourself. So resist growing until you know you're ready and you know that you can dedicate a sales resource to be in the market at least, at the very minimum, a few days a month. Uh, at the very minimum. Yeah, when, when you say dedicated sales resource, it sounds a little scary to a small operation. Oh man, I have to have a full-time employee in every state I want to move to. That's not what you mean. You just mean make sure you have someone who can spend some real time in all of these places. That's right. A good person can cover a couple of states, a couple of markets. I would say that in the real competitive key markets, you should have a dedicated person. New York, for example. Mm -hmm. If you're going to try to sell your product in New York, have a person dedicated to it. There's a million accounts there they can visit and sell product. So I would say put a person there. And by the way, if you don't have a person in New York, it's going to be very, very difficult because it's so competitive. But if you're talking about the Midwest and you got four or five states there, maybe the person's based in Chicago, but you've got them running all the way up and down, you know, from Wisconsin as far south as you want, maybe even covering Texas. You know, you could have one person try to cover those markets. And then the West Coast, you really do need someone almost dedicated to just California. It's a pretty big state. I think it deserves its own person. It could, yeah, pretty big. <laughs> I would argue that you should have a dedicated person in San Francisco mm-hmm. that would cover not just Northern California, but also the Pacific Northwest. And then you put a person in Los Angeles who covers Southern California and maybe parts of the Southwest like Arizona and maybe Nevada. That's kind of a model that I think would probably be able to give you what you need. 
just from your own experience, what are some of the best practices that you see in liquor sales? If someone had to ask you for the top two or three things that they should do for a successful sales operation, what would those things be? Well, I'd say number one, it's, it is a relationship business, both with your distributor and with accounts. You have got to hire salespeople that can build great relationships with distributors, executives, distributors, sales reps, and accounts. And it really is about relationships and people. So hire good people and foster really good, rewarding relationships that are win-win types of things throughout the three-tier system. I think that's best practice number one. Number two is when you're going to a market, make sure you're buttoned up. So you know your pricing, for example, needs to be really well thought out and strategically thought out, but also realistic. There's nothing worse than going into a market with setting up your pricing and doing all the setup with your distributor, and then they get out and they start selling it, and all you're hearing is, it's too expensive, Hmm. it's too expensive, it's too expensive, it's too expensive. And then you got to what? You got to go back to the drawing board. You got to redo your FOBs with your distributor. You have to redo the price books, and you have to re-communicate your pricing to the sales reps. Right and start all over. Now nice. everybody's confused. <laughs> so make sure you have a really strong commercial plan with everything from your pricing to your discount patterns and everything about the brand it needs to be very consistent and it needs to be right out of the box. Those are two biggies from a best practice standpoint. And, and lastly, as you can hear, I'm a big believer in do it yourself. You know, I know it's a big investment and that's the barrier, but the reward is you're going to actually get something going in the market sooner and you will be able to build a relationship with your distributor so that they start doing the work for you eventually. So I would say do it yourself and don't be afraid to do that. So kind of on the flip side then, those are the best things that a brand can do to ensure that they launch successfully. What is the one mistake that you wish you could just rid the world of liquor sales, is there one trap or pitfall you see companies making that you just wish you could just end if you could snap your fingers and this practice would be banished forever? Well, other than going into a state before you're ready, that is the biggest mistake. I and mean, I see it happen all the time. Don't go, resist the opportunity to go into a new state just for the fact that you think you can go in there. So that's number one. Mm-hmm. Number two is your distributor management style. I mentioned a style earlier about expecting your distributor to be able to do these things and setting these high expectations for them and then sort of riding them and asking them, you know, setting goals like, well, why didn't you achieve your goal this month? (laughs) Right. That distributor management style is not going to work. And what I see a lot of with in particular, well, I'll call them old school salespeople. So people that have been in this industry for a long time, that's kind of the way they operate. Maybe they have big company sales experience And they're used to just sort of riding their distributor and being a distributor manager and being a hard ass. Mm -hmm. That technique does not work with craft spirits that are just starting to get momentum. So I would tell people to resist hiring old school style sales reps and find some young people who can hustle and want to be out and do the work themselves. And that is going to be what excites the distributor and excites accounts to getting behind and supporting your brand. Well, fantastic. I can't think of a better way to end this discussion because I think everything that you're saying is is great. And it should help remind people who want to get into this business why they're getting into it to begin with. It's because they think that they can make the best product that's out there. or They're really filling a niche that no one else is, is looking at and they have a passion to do it. And 
you can't forget to carry that passion forward as you enter into your sales process. And on the flip side, if you don't have a sales process set up and no one ever gets to drink your amazing, fantastic, unique, never before seen product, then it's the tree falling in the woods scenario. It sure is. It's such a shame to see great brands not succeed. And I'll tell you, at Grapevines, as the founder of the company, that's really our passion. I want to see the best products succeed. And I want to help the best products succeed. Nothing drives me more crazy than going into an account and seeing crap behind the bar and crap being promoted. It's not fair. It's not right. And it bothers me. <laughs> There's so much better stuff out there. <laughs> oh, please. So I like to help the, these good, great beverage companies actually sell their wares and, and sell their products and get their products featured. That's our passion. That's great. And Tim, that really comes through. I can just tell. A question I like to ask everyone, what's your favorite cocktail and how do you like to make it? Could you share a recipe with us or what you like to drink right now? Geez, I, we're fortunate that we have some great customers and I like to drink their stuff. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, but I was on a, a High West a Manhattan for a while, which is a great company, a great brand. I really like their stuff. But, you know, I like, I'm in California, I'm in Southern California. And when it comes to a cocktail, I like using fresh ingredients and actually mixing things in, especially fruit. I used to work for a cachaça company. I was a managing director at LeBlanc Cachaça and we launched that brand. Oh around the globe. And as you know, Brazilian cachaça is made from fresh pressed sugarcane juice. So I used to love to make caipirinhas, which is typically cachaça and then muddled lime and sugar. But there's so many variations you can do with fresh fruit. And all the fresh fruit we get here in Southern California, you can muddle in blueberries, you can muddle raspberries or strawberries. And we used to have people over the house a lot in the summer for barbecues. And we just line up every fresh fruit we could find and people could muddle their own fresh fruit caipirinhas. It's great. And I think it's a great summertime cocktail. So I'll probably be on those again this summer. Oh, awesome. So Tim, everyone's listening to this podcast. They love what they hear from you. They want to get in touch with you. How can people reach out and get in touch with you and with Grapevines? I'm available to talk to anybody about this business, about just about any topic you've heard today. And I can be reached at Tim at greatvines.com. Our website, greatvines.com, of course, is there and you can click through and contact us from there. But I'd love to meet anyone who's trying to make their way in this industry and lend our consulting support. And of course, talk to them about using our Greatvines application to help them execute their sales plans to be successful. So anybody, please reach out to me. Through email is always the best way to get me and happy to talk. Awesome. Well, Tim, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate you sharing so much experience and wisdom with my listeners. Thank you, Zachary. Let's go out and have a drink when I'm in Brooklyn. Deal. (laughs) 